So as we jump into this uh, teaching today, um, that quote, which I didn't know was online unless Dard just took that off of our own website, <laughs> which is technically online. <laughs> uh, but I'm a fan of this uh, theology. It's not really new. Uh, Tom Ord uh, put an umbrella over it, which I introduced uh, last week. And it's a big umbrella to hold a range of thought within. Lots of like-minded people, process philosophy, process theology, open theism, all fall under this blanket or this big umbrella. Uh, the mystics of old uh, have been speaking in these themes for a very, very long time. And some more recent theologians in the last uh, century uh, made some of these ideas more widely known here in the United States and also in Europe primarily. So it's not brand new. It's certainly not unfounded, and we're going to look at that today. And, you know, the reason why I wanted to do this and, you know, my quote on this, again, I don't know where that, was that on our own website? Okay, so <laughs> that's what I thought, because I really do think it'll make a difference uh, in our lives because it's made a difference in my life. So I grew up in a very religious uh, household uh, with a basic conventional theology, not ultra conservative, even though we were Baptists, we were American Baptists. Uh, so we were much more in my household, grew up on the mainline uh, theological perspective more than uh, a deep evangelical perspective. And in our denomination, there's a lot of room uh, in there for us to breathe. That's why we're allowed, as because in our denomination, our larger body, there's a lot of room for freedom and expression and all that. That's also why I love it. Uh, so I grew up in a particular theological vein, and it worked for me for a very long time. But then there was a period of time where it didn't, didn't quite make as much sense as it once did. And so I started to entertain some different ways of thinking, and that really helped me uh, in a lot of ways. And until it didn't. <laughs> and then after a little bit more time, um, was introduced some, to some different ideas that uh, were hopefully going to be helpful, and they were helpful. And this is a very long process uh, for me. This stuff doesn't uh, happen uh, just overnight. Uh, and it's also, I want to, I've given you a whole lot of preface here uh, for a reason. Um, my process has been my process. So I'm speaking from my experience and what I've learned and what's been helpful for me. And I hope it might be helpful for you. But I also want to be very sensitive to the fact uh, that you, you have your life and you have your way of seeing. And it's working for you to some degree right now. And if some of these ideas uh, help you move uh, into a deeper relationship with God, awesome. That's my goal. If some of these ideas you hear and they totally jack with you to the point where that's actually hurting your relationship with God, well, good news. We only got a few more weeks left and you can just hang out and you can hear this as an entertaining idea uh, to think, but maybe you don't uh, go with it so much. And the reason why I'm saying this has to do with the cartoon that Lauren found me. It's on the inside of your bulletin. <clears throat> Lauren uh, finds these really interesting cartoons that have a lot to do with theological stuff. And so you can see uh, this is a membership class, and probably the pastor is teaching about churches and Christian movements throughout history, starting with Jesus at 1 AD and then developing out. And so he says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right, talking about their particular uh, perspective. And then a member of the class here is, uh, you know, just commenting, Jesus is so lucky to have us. <laughs> Well, in our scientific orientation in the Western world, 
That's how we approach things. And it's completely and utterly unhelpful. Uh, there is a real helpfulness to recognizing um, that there are helpful ways of thinking and some not so helpful ways of thinking. Uh, Ord in this particular chapter um, talks about how we all have our boxes into which we put God. And some of those boxes are way too confining. And some of the boxes are more adequate, perhaps. Our decision, knowing that there's no box to contain God, that's not possible. Our process then as human beings is to figure out, well, are there better boxes than others? <laughs> this is cataphatic stuff, if you remember from December. This is our trying to figure out as best we can how to understand God. So this is one of the ways uh, that we're looking at, and uh, it, I hope, will be helpful as it has been helpful to me. So I have a quick question for you on the next slide uh, to get us going. And this is a safe place. We're a very open community. So I want to know, uh, why do or don't you worship the sun as a deity? Now, what I'm talking about here is not sun worshipers and like I want to get a tan, you know, before swimsuit season. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking about actually worshiping the sun that crosses our horizon every day. You don't have to hold up your hands, but I'm wondering if there are any of you who literally worship the sun as a god. I'm not seeing too many. There's one right there. Thank you, Court. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> You're a very courageous man. Well, if you lived uh, in ancient Egypt, and if you remember... Um, uh, was it Nefertiti? Is that her name? Uh, she was the wife of a pharaoh in Egypt who, while he was ruling Egypt, uh, he abolished uh, polytheism in favor of worshiping the sun. I was just reading an article about uh, him and his wife uh, this past week, and he made the whole country uh, into sun worshipers, literally. And, it, you know, it makes sense. Uh, if you live in a primitive time, and you see the sun every day showing up, casting its watchful gaze on us as it crosses the horizon. It makes complete sense that people would imagine that that surely is a god by day and the moon would be the god by night. That just makes sense. Now, as soon as Nefertiti's husband died, the pharaoh died, the next pharaoh brought it right back uh, to, to a polytheistic um, Egyptian mythological perspective. Why is that? Because the prevailing culture still believed in a multiplicity, a multitude of gods, instead of that one sun god. Now, there are probably some reasons why you don't worship the sun, literally, as a god. And one of those reasons is because ever since you were a kid, you learned that the sun that we look at and provides us warmth is actually our wonderful star that warms us up and enables everything to grow. And if it ever died, well, we're going to die along with it. That's how we know it works. So you're not going to worship something that you know is not a God because you know it's actually a star. However, I am certain just by virtue of the fact that we live on a round planet and there are still people among us today that believe the earth is flat, <laughs> that I'm hunching that there are still people out there that are not convinced that would even tell you that the sun actually is a god and it is not a star in the sky because we see it with our own eyes and it must surely be that 
you can't trust all of science after all, right? So we know that that's a reality in our world. So there's always going to be people with varying thoughts, but my guess is that most of you, if not all of you, even court, mo most of you would agree that the sun is actually a star. And it's not really a god. And therefore, to worship it would not make any sense. If you were to say that a very long time ago, you would have been an outlier. And as soon as you would have said that, if you dared to say it, the rest of the culture around you would call you out. And they would tell you that you're wrong, that your ideas are crazy, and that you need to get in line. In some cultures, in some pockets, you might even be severely wounded or hurt or chastised, maybe even killed for no longer worshiping the sun god. So you learn to keep your mouth shut. You learn how to speak things which publicly keep you in the good graces of those around you, while at the same time inwardly not quite certain that you fully buy in to worshiping the sun. You go through the motions, but there's just this growing disconnect in you. What I'm just describing, you can look at easily as a distant thing in the past that has no relevance to you today. But I would suggest that some of the ideas that we're talking about in open relational theology are just like what I described. And some of the things, the ways of thinking are so different than conventional theology, which has its root in the depths of the past, uh, they can get you in trouble too. Uh, they've gotten me in trouble uh, because I've been in trouble. And so we know this, and it can make you uncomfortable. And some of you shared stories uh, about how some of these ideas and just different ways of thinking, especially if you start to uh, really resonate with it, uh, can throw you into a tailspin for a while. And so that's to be expected. And let's just talk about uh, some things that we're looking at today. Today, we're talking about the openness of God and what does that mean. And this has a lot to do with a couple key features about is God fixed? Is God a changing God? Is God, uh, how does God uh, relate to time? Do you ever think about that? <laughs> things we don't think to ask until it's put in front of us, but how does God relate to time? Is God timeless in the sense that God is already deep into the future and also present and also past? That's a very, very conventional view of God that makes God a changeless being, that essentially it is set, that your days are numbered, God knows when you're going to die, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way it is. God knows when the end game is actually going to happen. All these things are known because that's the conventional view of God. God is not affected by creation at all, uh, but God is just simply God. That's, that's the primary way of thinking about this uh, reality. Interestingly, in your hymn uh, that we sang today, uh, we see some evidence of that. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. This sounds like a God who does not change, ever, fixed, impassable is one of the fancy words for that. But then look at the chorus. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, 
new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. There is no need for new mercies if God has already got plenty of mercy out there for everybody. This represents a tension between believing in a fixed deity that is unchanging and unchangeable, and yet a response of this. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because if, if God truly is unchangeable, and I know I'm getting a little heady with you, and that's kind of the point of this whole series. Uh, if God is fixed that way, uh, cannot be changed, then why do you have any goals whatsoever? Because you do have goals. We may not call them uh, New Year's resolutions because nobody wants to say that anymore because <clears throat> we always fail at them, but you do have goals. The, raise your hand if you had a goal. Some of you say you don't have a goal, but you do have a goal. Your goal is to live. And my guess is that one of your goals is to eat and drink enough water so that you survive, to get enough sleep, to do healthy things so that you can keep marching forward. You all have goals. We all have goals, but we don't need to have goals if God is completely in charge of everything and totally fixed and everything is set before us. We don't need goals because if God's in that kind of control, if, if God is that kind of unchangeable, then whatever we do is already God's will anyway. So do whatever you want because whatever you do surely must be part of God's fixed plan. So the question then is, is that really how we should understand God? Is there a different way to understand God that might allow us some freedom? Personally, that more conventional view of that fixedness, that was very troubling to me. And it just didn't make sense. Uh, a lot of it didn't, the, the story of Jesus in particular, the atonement for sins and all that, not, that did not make any sense to me if God was already fixed, if it was already done. Why have Jesus show up if it's already figured out? So that alone didn't make, did not add up for me. If, if this is the way it is and God already knew that from the very beginning, why do you need the inbreaking of Jesus into the world to do anything at all? If it's already predetermined who's in, who's out, uh, who God favors, how many days we have to live and breathe. And so um, what I want to take a look at and what I wondered about is, are there any biblical references where we see not a God that is fixed in stone, but actually is responsive? And it turns out we don't have to look very far in the Bible. Uh, we just have to turn to the book of Genesis and <laughs> one of the very first stories that we see we get an example of this. So I have a little bit of lift out. Uh, God is, by this time on the front of your bulletin, God has created the heavens and the earth uh, and created Adam and Adam's name and animals and stuff. And then uh, God has a talk with Adam. This is before Eve is created. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely, freely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Fast forward a little bit. Eve is created. Uh, Eve is in the garden. She and Adam are having a spat. They're a little bit apart from each other. And this serpent creature comes along and starts asking all kinds of questions about this fruit. And asks, you know, why can't you eat the fruit? And Eve says, well, we're, we're going to die if we eat the fruit. And that's where we enter in the story again. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that, was a, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said. Well, I heard I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. <laughs> Classic blaming the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. Well, fast forward, lots of consequences are described by God after this point, uh, saying to Adam, yeah, you're going to make it, uh, but it's going to be tough for you. We're going to kick you out of the garden. You're going to have to, by the sweat of your brow, you're going you're gonna to work and you're going to live. And Eve, uh, bad news for you too. Uh, you're going to have kids and it is going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to hurt. Uh, you're going to think you're dying, but you're not. It's just the way it is. The serpent gets uh, moved from whatever kind of posture he was into, becoming a snake on his belly on the ground. After all this happens, then the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is in the ancient Hebrew myth. This was their way of of articulating their theological worldview in contrast to other cultural mythologies that were around there. And this one was quite distinct in many, many ways. But one of the things that we see here is that you see not a hard and fast in stone, I am never going to change God. You see a God who is flexible, who responds to the moment, who changes. Because the God that talked to Adam, at the very beginning, says, if you eat of the tree that I'm telling you not to eat, you are going to die. Now, their innocence may have gotten killed, but what actually happened? Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that was told that they were going to die the very day, and they did not die. Furthermore, even though there were consequences to their behavior and their decision, <laughs> not only didn't they die, but God actually helps them. He gives them advice. He gives them a heads up on what it's going to be like. And not only does he just do that, God brings out a sewing machine. He says, well, the fig leaves are nice, but I think you're going to need something a little stronger. God <laughs> provides them clothing to go forward. God doesn't kill them. God actually helps them live longer. This is just a simple example of what do we do 
with a God who we're told is unchanging. And yet, in one of the very first stories, we see that God changed. Now, this can be very disconcerting if you think about it for a moment. Can you imagine why a changing God would be very disconcerting? Because if that's true to a degree, it could be that Thursday, this Thursday, God might wake up on the wrong side of the galaxy, and his normal happy God self would be very grumpy. And wouldn't that just be a bummer if this Thursday you happen to have a crisis, and you call out to God on this Thursday, and it's a crisis of your own making, you ate your own kind of fruit, and it's catching up with you, and you cry out to God for help this Thursday. But darn it, God woke up on the wrong side of the galaxy. He's grumpy today. And so instead of normally being kind like he was with Adam and Eve, he's like, ah, I told you a hundred times, don't do that. And you did it. So tough luck, man. You're, you're, you're cut off. This is it for you. How do we live in a relationship with a God who is changing if that is the case? What do we do with that? There are, <laughs> there are portions of the Bible uh, at least 40, I think, according to Ord, where God repents, not from sin, but the word repent means to turn around, that God changed God's mind. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, God even says, I, the Lord, do not change. But in the very next frame, God speaks of his willingness to change if the people will repent. So how do we get our brains around this and still have any confidence at all that there's a God that is worth putting our faith in if that God is not as fixed as Thomas Aquinas back in the day said? The most prolific Catholic theologian said, in no uncertain terms, God is unchanging. God is not at all affected by anything in creation. You may think so, but it's a lie. God remains steadfast, exactly as God is, and God does not respond to people, even though there are biblical stories to the contrary and our own experience. So what do we do with that? Well, uh, about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, people thought more about this. And they thought, well, maybe there's a, a nuance here that we need to appreciate. And so they differentiated. This comes from process philosophy and process theology. They differentiated between essence and experience. And they said, well, maybe a way to think about it is that the essence of God, the character of God, never changes. But the experience of God, how God experiences, in other words, relating to created creation, how God responds changes all the time depending on what the creation is doing. So you have a fixed nature, but then you also have a God who is responsive to that. And that brings up another question. What kind of music is our relationship with God? Is our relationship with God a classical piece by Mozart or Bach, where the symphony just simply sits down and they open up their music and, and they have the whole thing before them. They know where they're going to start. They know the tempo. They know the key. And they can look all the way to the end and they can see the final bar where everything ends. Is that it? Is that how it works? We're all playing our pre-written part. Or is God more like with us a jazz combo? A jazz combo 
kind of like what you see up here with Keith, they don't necessarily, well, a lot of times the pros especially, they never have any music in front of them. They don't need it. They might have a, a melody line that they're going to play with a little bit, uh, but really it's not about that as much as how the different artists in the combo, and it can be as, as few as two people uh, or maybe up to four or five uh, on different instruments, but the beauty of the combo is that they completely respond and react to each other. If you've ever been to a live jazz event like this, if you're used to classical music, you'll kind of hate it <laughs> because you're going to be like, when is this song going to end, man? I mean, this, this has been going on for 15 minutes and it's still going, you know? Uh, get on with it already if, you, if that's how your orientation is. But if you can be in the moment and allow yourself to be a part of what's happening, it's quite remarkable to see how the drummer is responding to whoever's taking the lead and how the bassist is responding to that as well. And the guy on the keyboard is just interacting with everyone else, always in a constant flow, responding one to the other. Ord suggests this may be a much healthier way to think about God's relationship with all of creation. Character is fixed. Character is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, self-control, all those beautiful attributes that everybody aspires to. The character is unchanging, but the way God works with creation, with creation, with creatures, you and me, and everything is responsive and changeable and flexible because it has to be. A way to think about this, Tom Ord talks about uh, teaching his girls how to play soccer. And he says that when his girls were very young, when they were just, you know, preschool age, he took them out into their front yard or their backyard and got the soccer ball out and recognized that their skill level was very, very low. Now, Tom loves his daughters. There's no question that Tom loves his daughters. But the way he chose to relate and experience that love with his daughters on the soccer field was to respect where they were and their capacity to relate around the game of soccer, which meant teaching them just how to kick the ball and maybe kick the ball and run after it and kick again and maybe show them that's where the goal is. Try to kick the ball into the goal. And that's about as much as a preschooler is going to be able to get because that's where they are in their capacity. Tom has a lot more to teach, a lot more love to give, but that's as much as the preschooler is able to do. Now, his girls grew, and when they were in elementary school, Tom, who was pretty good at soccer apparently, uh, he also taught them a little bit more. His love for them did not change, did not grow at all, but his experience with them of loving them did change. Why? Because their capacity was different. They were able to do more than they were able to do before. They could understand more. Their bodies were growing and had more capacity. Neurons had connected that weren't there before. Gross motor skills had come online. Their fine motor skills also were coming online, all of which commenced to help them to be better soccer players so that when Tom taught them, this is how you dribble, this is how you go between the cones, they could actually do it. The love didn't change, but the experience did. And finally, when they were in middle school and high school, Tom could meet them fully uh, with everything that he was able to teach them. And they were able to experience a different fashion of love from their father. 
I think that's a pretty helpful way to think about our relationship with God, how you have the character of God, which is unchanging, but God is constantly flowing with us and responding to us based on where we are. And not as, I want to be careful, this came out in the first service in our, our question and answer stuff. This is not to suggest that if, uh, this is not to suggest a linear pattern where if you're not growing or you're not developing more than you're a loser or something, or that you're more right than somebody else who is, you know, still in preschool. That, that's not the point. The point is that God meets us where we are, loves us fully, but loves us to the capacity that we're able to receive it. And that is very good news for lots of reasons. One of the reasons it's really good news is that our brains can only figure out so much anyway. And there are some things that are so deeply entwined in us, ways of seeing the world and thinking, that it takes a long time for shifts to happen. It takes a long time for healing to happen sometimes. We get wounded in a particular way. It takes weeks, months, years, decades for that wound to finally get to a place where God can begin to use that and say, let's take a look at this and recognize, you know, what are we going to do with this thing now? Because sometimes the wound is just left open forever. And there's no more to be done with it than God just to meet us where we are in our woundedness and inch along with us, loving us as much as possible. But there's no way that it can do more than that because it would be inappropriate to do that. As much as we want Clay Thompson you know, back in the Warriors, back in the lineup, the doctors keep telling us, you're just going to have to wait a little bit more, a little bit more. And I wonder if that's kind of how it is with us and our own healing journey, our own working out our stuff, working out our salvation, going deeper into who God is and, and higher in our capacity for living. I think this allows us to have a little bit more roominess and if we understand that the core character of God, this is something that we look throughout the whole Bible. And by the way, if you're new to the whole Bible, uh, you've got a whole bunch of different books that are organized in different ways from history, law, uh, some poetic books, some prophetic books. That's just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have uh, some biographies sort of of Jesus. Those are called the Gospels. And you have a whole bunch of letters uh, ending with this prophetic book uh, called uh, Revelation. From cover to cover, they're trying to figure it out. And you see ebbs and flows. There's not one theology in the Bible. There are multiple theologies. And sometimes they don't necessarily uh, go together so well. That's a good thing. Because what that tells us is that people progress. There's, there's an okayness to wonder, to expand, to think differently. The New Testament, uh, you see Jesus messing with the way things were and pushing forward. And his disciples, after Jesus was gone, they kept pushing forward in their thought and their exploration of everything. That is our tradition, is to wonder. And so if we can look at the Bible and recognize that there is this golden thread that really does go from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it is that the character of God really is, as, as a letter from John says, is love. That if there's one word that defines God, it's love. And if we look at what that would, how that would be expressed in Hebrew, well, the word love does show up quite a lot, but, but if there's one word that really brings it all together, it's that word shalom. 
which sometimes is just translated as peace, but it's much more than that. It's like this all-encompassing, um, holistic well-being where there's harmony within us, there's harmony outside of us, where all of the fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of that comes together. It's like a basket <laughs> that holds all of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the character and nature of God that we're invited to relate to. And so how do we grow in relation to that, knowing that God is going to be responsive to us? By the way, this was, you know, this was one of the growth periods for me, is figuring out all right, I don't think that everything is fixed in time. I don't think that's all preordained or, or written ahead of time. So I kind of crossed that mental hurdle. And then I was thinking, well, I know God's at work in the world. And I know that, you know, the Spirit of God's trying to do its thing. But God's pretty big and God's going to be doing that. So I, what does it matter what I do? I mean, I want to be a part of it, but do I really have any influence in anything? Uh, or is God's power just going to do its thing? And this is where this really was helpful and this way of thinking. Because the answer is, yes, you have influence. Your life matters. And not just, you know, to win more people to get to heaven someday. Your life matters for this life right now. For the people in the world and the world itself right now. That's the design of it. When God sends Adam out, it's to tend the soil. It's to work the land in ways that the land would produce. <laughs> His advice to Adam and Eve and all people forward is to treat each other with dignity and respect. All of this stuff means we have agency. And so how do we invite more of God into our lives? How do we grow in that? Well, it comes from some pretty basic things that we see in the life of Jesus, Prayer, which I'll come back to in a second, that's not just prayer, but everything we do to, in our spiritual development to commune with God. Uh, lifelong learning. Um, Jesus himself uh, was a lifelong learner. He continued to think and grow. Did you know that? Jesus grew <laughs> in his thinking. And if you really want to push this a little bit, God also learns. Because <laughs> there's never been a you like you before. There's never been a you who did you before in, in history. And the more you do going forward is a new piece of information that adds to God's capacity to know. This is heady stuff, but the more you think about it, if, if, if openness, if free will is really a thing, if that's true, then the ongoing unfolding of creation is a new reality moment by moment. And new information is generated moment by moment. God knows all of those things that are unfolding, which means that God's capacity and understanding and omniscience is growing too. This is a character issue of God. And we're invited to learn as well about ourselves, about God. Serving others, we see that clearly in, uh, throughout the Bible that God serves the people. It's a, that's because God loves the people. So when we choose to serve other people, we find ourselves joining hands with God. God's already at work with that. Advocating, uh, this is an area that the church probably needs to think about a little bit more. We've kind of had fits and starts with this historically, church capital C. And this just simply falls in line with something that God does throughout the Bible, which is look out for the person who's getting squeezed. Look out for the underdog. Look out for the one who's been taken advantage of and stand with them 
so they no longer get taken advantage of. Uh, throughout the entire Bible, uh, that's the poor, that's the orphan, and that's the widow, and it's the immigrant. Four people groups throughout antiquity that were constantly being taken advantage of. And God says to the people of God, you take care of them because nobody else is. And so we need to be asking that question now. Who are the people that are getting stepped on? Because God is not cool with that. And if we see examples where we can advocate for that to no longer happen, that's a thing that God is already a part of, that God is already blessing, and we're invited to do the God work there. And the final piece has to do, I made this word up, intimacying. And this isn't really a, a you know, um, lover type thing, but I mean intimacy in terms of human relationships more broadly. Like you being there for somebody uh, in their most painful times, really there. Not to give them the quick fix, but to listen, to sit with them, to be with them in their pain. That is a deeply holy, loving God thing to do. And God is already there. So it's like you're just meeting God where God is already at work. We can easily do this with times of joy and really celebrate, especially if we get specific with those joys. But there is a power when we join in with people. If you've ever been in that kind of environment where you're with somebody in the depths of their despair, it is a holy moment. It's difficult, but it's one of those things where you would never trade it because you recognize that you just experienced the touch of God there because love goes there and it's incredibly powerful. And I want to say this to you that, you know, some of us are really good at going there for other people and choosing to go deep with people and this kind of intimacy, but we're really bad at letting others do it for us. I don't know why it's probably pride. That's it's usually pride is for me anyway. I don't need help, <laughs> right? And yet, what do I do when I choose to not let somebody help me? Well, I usually answer the phone. <laughs> it's God calling, George. <laughs> yeah, right. So what, do you, what are we doing when we, when we refuse the help of another person? Well, one thing we're doing is we're refusing could be the active love of God coming toward us to be with us. Sometimes we feel so isolated, and the reason we might feel isolated is because we have been the ones who have said to people who care about us, oh, it's okay, I'm okay, you don't need to come over, you don't need to check on me, I've got it together, because our, our culture says you need to have it together all the time or you're a loser. And that's just not true. We're human beings. <laughs> and if, if you think you've got it all together all the time, you're the one in denial because everybody else knows that that cannot possibly be true. So in refusing somebody to come into intimacy with us in that frame, we're refusing more love for us, companionship that we need so much, but we're also doing something terrible as well. And that is we are limiting that person's capacity to do what they were created to do, to be responsive as God, to be able to use their gifts, their person, their love for us in a meaningful way. We've put a kink in the hose. And so maybe today, maybe that's your take home. 
is, uh, hey, who can I come alongside with? And maybe more importantly, who am I going to allow to come alongside of me? And because that's how God works in the world. God responds to us. But I want to come back to prayer and just say this, that your prayers really do matter. This isn't, God is not, a, you know, a genie that we throw our wishes up and get God to do stuff. I know that there are primitive ways of thinking, and, and that those, some of those primitive ways are even expressed uh, in the Bible and the story because they lived in a time where that just made sense, where if we just do enough, if we're, if we're contrite enough, if we repent hard enough, if we sacrifice enough, then God will finally you know, grant our wish. Uh, but that's not really how it works. Maybe what we need to think about is that when we pray for somebody, because we have agency and we are connected to God and the future is open and God is constantly at work, maybe a way to think about it right away is that when we open ourselves in prayer to whatever the focus of our prayer is, there's one thing for sure that is going to be affected, and that's us. You've certainly heard this before, but when we pray, uh, there is major change that happens, and the major change is in us. In my experience, that has been constantly true, especially if I'm open in my prayer concern uh, and open to how God wants to frame that concern. I find my eyes, my heart, my mind shifting. Now there's a contrast here. If we have our own idea about what God must do, and so we only pray for this one thing, uh, because we're so sure that that's exactly what God would want us to pray for, we run into some trouble there, and we can actually miss what God is wanting us to do. You know, Jesus himself said, you know, you ask anything in my name and it'll be done. Wow. That's why we always add that tagline in Jesus' name. <laughs> Seriously, that's, that's part of why the tradition grew. Uh, is to make sure we're saying the magic words, because Jesus said, if we do it, it'll get done. But you and I know that can't possibly be because there have been prayers that we have prayed, and we've made sure to add the tagline, and it didn't work. So what's he talking about? What he's talking about is how we choose to be in relationship with the God who is open to us. When we say we're going to pray in Jesus' name, we're saying we're going to pray in the framework of Jesus which constantly says to God, I'm open to what you're doing in the world. I know you're a God who is healing, loving, bringing joy. You're a redemptive God. This is what you're wanting to do in every situation, and we're praying for that. The specifics, I don't understand. I don't even know what's best, but I'm praying, God, that you will be redemptive in this situation, that your love will flow into this, that your peace will flow into this, your strength, all the fruits of, spirits will, of the Spirit will be evident in this situation I'm praying for. That's a prayer in Jesus' name that always gets answered because God is always about redeeming, loving, bringing joy, peace, strength, the whole thing, and you can't go wrong with it. And where it starts is with us. But you also don't know not just how much it's going to do for you, but you and I do not know if we really are that connected together in this openness of God, God who is connected to absolutely everyone happening in real time. We don't know what our influence really does have in the rest of the world. But apparently a response of God responds to prayers. And who knows just how powerful the prayer of the righteous might be.
if we all actually pray together? Could it be that that's why James in the Bible says the prayer of the righteous are powerful and effective because he'd seen it at work already? Sometimes you may be discouraged to pray, thinking it doesn't matter. Well, it matters. It matters to you, and it matters to the rest of the world. So keep praying. It may be one of the most lovely gifts that you can give uh, to somebody. I want to finish by saying that, uh, you know, in this, in this context, the early service is a little easier for Q&A, and we're trying to figure out a, a good way to allow some pushback and feedback and, you know, mutual learning to happen after this service. And so if you want to be a part of that, let me know, uh, because we can, we can organize that. And Keith's always wanted to be a part of something like that, so we'll figure that out. But I want to tell you that, again, um, that the ideas that I'm sharing with you, they really resonate with me. And I've been living in this open and relational theo theological perspective for a couple of decades. And it feels more and more uh, accurate for me and my perception and experience. At the same time, I know that it doesn't work uh, for other people. That's why there are multiple ways of thinking. And I'm saying that to give you freedom to know that if you don't agree with me or something doesn't sit well, uh, it's fine. It's fine. My encouragement to you is to figure out what you believe and take away some of the boxes that are not helpful to make room uh, for things that will be more helpful. Uh, last week, um, my mom called me, and uh, my extended family was all at my parents' place in Kansas City. And uh, so the day after Christmas, she calls me Christmas, well, we talked on Christmas, and she said, hey, can you send me the link? Because we thought it would be fun uh, to watch your service on the 26th. Uh, the family could gather around and all that. And my first reaction, well, first thought was, well, it's on our website. You can get it anytime you want. <laughs> but, I, but I wasn't going to speak disrespect to my mother. So anyway, so I said, yeah, sure. I'll make sure. Just tell my sister, you know, to go to YouTube and look up our church and she'll easily find it. Or just go to our website. Just you know. So anyway, I knew that they would have the link. But then I also said, I said, you know, mom, I'm going to be teaching on some kind of contra controversial stuff uh, tomorrow. So just want to give you a heads up because uh, I don't want it to cause any problems with anybody. And she knows my story. So she's like, well, well, what controversial stuff? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm just going to be introducing a different theological take on things. And, it, you know, it may challenge some conventional renderings of things. And I said it because uh, I, I know that uh, in my own family and for my own mother and one of my sisters, you know, they, they feel much more at home and blessed by a much more conventional theological perspective. And I don't want to blow that for them. Uh, so when I hear them say things which uh, for, for them they see it, this, is, this brings them great comfort and the way they articulate things. You know what I do with them? I just agree with them. And I agree with them because I'm with them. And I'm saying with them, you know what, Mom? You're right. Uh, you're right, and you can have faith in God, and I have faith with you, and, and the God that you're expressing, I could say a little less clumsy than this, but anyway, I'm just saying that I recognize that there's tension with this. This may feel so good to you, but it may not feel good to everybody, and the point is, 
are you at least messing with it so that it can mess with you and hopefully help you firm things up that need to be helped? All right. Well, that's all I got. So let's pray together and uh, see where things go uh, this week. Let's pray. So God, I don't know uh, exactly what is um, going to stick. It could be that because this has been a framework that we've been talking about here for years, that it doesn't seem new or risky at all, even though it is. Uh, so help us remember, God, that as, as we start articulating and maybe living into this reality in the world, that a lot of the rest of the world is not there. They have a different perspective, which in some ways working for them. And so we honor that. And yet we keep moving forward in ways of our understanding that help us allow more of you into our lives and actually allow us to flourish as people as well, uh, using all of our agency that you've given us uh, to do as much as we can because we want our life to be everything it can be. And we want that to be true for everybody on the planet. We want more of you in the world because that's only a good thing. And so be with us, God, as we poke around on new ideas and consider some things, even language that we've used in the past that may not quite express uh, what we feel anymore is true. Uh, help us move forward and help us do so in the framework of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, which we choose to pray now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming. Next week, we're going to look at uh, how God is relational with us and what that means in the created world. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool stuff. So I look forward to teaching you that next week. Thanks a lot. Have a good one.